Heavenly Father, we pray this day that as we hear your word, that you would help us to understand it and to give us a clearer picture of who you are, so that we might grow as your people and we might grow in our knowledge and love of your Son. Amen. A throne room, emerald rainbows, a crystal sea, strange angels with animal heads, covered in eyes, blazing torches, endless chanting and falling down, and songs. I would venture to say that if you were to ask your average person to describe heaven, they would come up with something very different to what we see or we just had read to us. Maybe they would go for the classic uh, fluffy cloud picture with you know, angels having harps, or perhaps they would go for, as my friend did and once speculated, um, a never-ending buffet. Um, it does sound pretty appealing, doesn't it? Or perhaps as John Lennon once sang, that heaven for him was in fact no heaven at all. And if you were to go up to someone who had never heard this passage before and to describe them all the things uh, that are listed in this passage and say, this is what heaven is like, I think most people would say, well, that's, that's pretty weird. With its imagery, its symbols, the numbers, it seems almost bizarre, uh, almost like a psychedelic album from the 70s. Now, the, the Apostle John, he paints for us this word picture of the heavenly throne room. But why is this the picture that Christ wanted John to see? The Protestant reformer, uh, John Calvin, said that true wisdom comes from knowing two things. Two things are most important. To know God and to know ourselves. And this passage, as, as foreign as it is, it tells us so much about the God we worship. And so we should ask, does... The God that we see here, the God we are told about in this vision, does that line up with the picture of God that I trust in? See, we never want to be a people who who create a God of our own imagination. No, we want God as he truly is. And I think this vision, what it will do is, of God, it forces us to take God seriously as we perceive his unimaginable glory. And it's when we know God, when we rightly understand, it's actually when we know God that we can rightly understand ourselves in comparison, who we are, what we are, and how we should respond to him. So over the next two weeks of the holidays, we are looking at Revelation chapters 4 and 5, two scenes in the throne room of heaven. Uh, And these scenes are key to understanding Revelation throughout the rest of the book, uh, it keeps returning to this location uh, as, the, as the book unfolds. And Revelation chapter 4 uh, is only part one of a two-part saga. Uh, and this part particularly focuses on God as the glorious creator. Next week we're going to see in chapter 5 that God is not just the creator but also the redeemer of the world with the Lamb, Jesus Christ, at its centre. And as we've seen in Revelation, uh, the language here is highly symbolic. um, Highly symbolic and and using metaphors and various images. And it can be easy to get bogged down in trying to work out every single symbol and minuscule detail. What could it mean? What stone is being spoken about? But 
I think it's good to think of Revelation uh, and scenes like this, like a, a great work of art, like a great painting, where there are important details often included um, by the artist uh, that you should pick up. But at the end of the day, you have to see the whole picture for what it is. So it is important to unpack the symbols where they are helpful and contribute to the whole picture. Uh, And it's important to know that in this scene, uh, there are more Old Testament references than you can shake a stick at. Uh, If you were to look at other scenes, and maybe you've picked up on some of them, if you were to look at other scenes where uh, God's throne appears, say, uh, in Isaiah 6 or Ezekiel 1 or Daniel 7, uh, you would notice some similarities to this passage, some things that have been incorporated from those passages. And it seems like all of these Old Testament images come together for the ultimate throne room scene. As John is taken up in his vision to the heavenly throne room itself. John goes through the door and is able to perceive heavenly realities that people cannot ordinarily see. Now this isn't a field trip or a tourist trip to heaven. Uh, The point of this passage isn't, I don't think, to tell us uh, exactly what heaven would look like if we were suddenly teleported up there so we could draw it or describe it. No, it's to tell us about God and it's to tell us about what God is doing. And that's why when uh, Jesus calls John, he says, see, see, come, sorry, come up and see and I will show you what must take place after this. We see heaven's perspective of history and eternity and how it will all unfold, of how God's great plan of salvation will come to completion. That's what this is all about. That's what it's all leading to. And so if you've got your outline there, what we see first is a description of the indescribable. We have this incredible picture of wonder, of majesty, of beauty. Uh, This week I was going through my thesaurus because I was thinking, what words could I use to convey this scene and to do it justice. I mean, what does John see before him? Well, he sees a throne and someone seated on it. Uh, Verse 2, if you've got the passage open. At once I was in the Spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. First we are told that John, he sees a throne. The classic symbol of a king of where his rule and authority lay. At that time, the Roman emperor's throne, that was where the power in the world was thought to be. Perhaps many in the church at this time uh, found it difficult to remember that God was the king when Caesar claimed to be the ruler of the world and appeared to have all earthly power on his side. The emperor even had kings who served him. What was the small and feeble church before such might, such power? Christians perhaps uh, in countries where they're being persecuted today by the government, say, like in China, uh, they might be asking these same questions. Well, the church needs the reminder that there is a throne above every power, a throne above Caesar's. It is here that we see the true power of the universe, the throne of the King of heaven and earth. And someone is seated on this throne. Note that he says someone. He doesn't actually, John doesn't actually name the one who is seated on the throne, which is odd because we all know who it is and it, we know it's the most important person in the room. But John only states that he has the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. Why does he say this about God? Well, 
I think with the, the appearance of Jasper and Ruby's precious stones, uh, we see, John sees a brilliant light coming from God. I, I remember when I was a kid, I went to the Tower of London um, in England to see the crown jewels and I still remember it vividly because it was just so incredible to see these um, just precious stones and jewels worth, I can't even imagine how much, and seeing how the light would bounce off them and refract and, and, and shine. Uh, it was incredible. We see God surrounded by this incredible light. Uh, this week I learnt the word effluence uh, from Steve. It's a brightness that is so overwhelming that you can barely even look at it. And we see, I think, a God of even greater brilliance here. The God who we're told in 1 Timothy lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. So you get a description really of of everything else, the throne, the radiance of God, the various things around the throne, but not really God himself. I think why this is, is how does one describe God? How do you visualise and describe the most powerful, the most wise, the most good being in the universe? Uh, Elsewhere in the Bible, Uh, We see that as the authors get closer to even trying to attempt to describe the living God, they can only resort at the end of the day to to symbols and metaphors because it stretches the limits of our imaginations. Because God is is too great. He is glorious. He is wonderful. He is so pure. He cannot be contained. And that's why to make an image of God, uh, as when Israel makes the golden calf, that's actually to really do a terrible thing because what you do is you distort who God is. We must, involve, we must uh, move beyond any distortion of God. Uh, God is not the uh, old bearded nice man who I used to visualise when I thought of him. Um, he is not just a guidance counsellor who you go to, friend, to go to for friendly advice. No, we must not make God anything less than he is. So on the throne, we have God. And we also see around the throne, there is an emerald rainbow. Uh, Perhaps it's green and circular, like a halo. Perhaps it's just a rainbow behind that's multicoloured. But the rainbow is here. Um, We might know that it is a a famous symbol of God's covenant with Noah. Uh, it, It may be that it's a reminder that God will keep his promises in light of the coming judgment. Coming off the throne in verse 5, you have peals of thunder and lightning. Uh, I was once caught in a storm in the bush. uh, And I must say it was a very different experience than just watching a storm from outside. uh, Sorry, watching a storm that's going on outside in the comfort of your living room. The storm that I was in was was terrifying and awe-inspiring as the trees were shaking, the thunder was rumbling around me, lightning was striking. And even though I knew the chance was pretty low of the lightning hitting me, I knew that if it did, I would be gone. This throne, it radiates beauty, majesty, power. And we get further evidence of God's throne as we move out from it. Uh, And all of this stuff is arranged in concentric circles around the throne of God. We see God has a heavenly court. Why does God have a, a heavenly court of all things? Heavenly Court of Angels. Well, uh, if you were to go and knock on the the door to the White House, now I know you probably wouldn't want to do that at the moment, um, the president having COVID, but imagining, you know, maybe a year or so ago, if you were to go and knock on the door to the White House, uh, who's going to answer the door? 
Well, not the president, that's for sure. Uh, if you're able to get in, you're probably going to get the secret service and then some kind of secretary and then more secret service and then maybe the chief of staff and then even more secret service. And then finally, perhaps you meet the president. See, the court is a sign of God's majesty and power, the court and the retinue of a king. And so we see there are are 24 elders with thrones around him in verse 4, dressed in white with crowns. Uh, They are most likely not people or humans, but exalted angelic beings. Uh, And that there's 24 of them, it means that they stand for the full people of God. So 24, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Right now, um, you've also got next to the throne, uh, there are four angelic beings with animal heads standing before the throne itself. Uh, These hybrid animal angelic beings, um, it's kind of a blend of what you get in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6 and it seems that these are the cherubim, the highest angels who serve God. And why do they look like animals? Well, what we see I think is the pinnacle of God's creation. The eagle, the greatest of birds, the bull, the greatest of domestic animals, the lion, the greatest of the wild animals, and humanity, the greatest of all of God's creation. It's a sign that all of creation exists for God's glory. And the eyes that cover them show God's omniscience, that all is laid bare before him. See, this angelic host, they exist to serve and to worship God. Notice that uh, the attention, their attention is not on themselves or anything they, they have. All of their attention is directed towards God and that's where ours should be as well. Uh, you have the seven lamps, verse 5, uh, which is God's way of referring to the Holy Spirit, the one who mediates God's presence. Verse 6, the sea of glass, like crystal. Uh, glass back then was not normally clear um, like we have it today. It was usually um, opaque. So to have clear glass like crystal would be a magnificent thing to see. It it shows God's splendour and his transcendence. So here's John sitting on the outside of all of this, taking it in, this scene of magnificence and majesty, a God who is glorious and transcendent and therefore unapproachable. Who could approach such a throne? Who would want to? John is separated by this crystal sea, these powerful angelic beings, not to mention the power and glory that is emanating from the throne itself. I mean, I wouldn't want to run towards the thing that's emitting lightning bolts. No, what we see is a picture of God's transcendence and it reminds us, I think, of the magnitude of difference between God and between all of creation and between God and us. He is the creator and we are his creatures and we are in no way equals. As Don Carson says, we can't understand God's love until we understand his transcendence. Why is that? Well, because if we understand the gap between us and between God, it shows us how marvellous it is that God would somehow bridge that gap. Because while transcendent God is is not absent, he draws near to his world, he draws near to us. He cares for humanity. He makes himself known through his world and most remarkable of all, God the Son becomes a man to, to reveal who God is, who God the Father is. 
So we see God in his glory. And the rest of this passage shows us that this God is not on the sidelines or absent. No, he is involved in the game he created. So we've got point two, that God is worthy of all praise for who he is. Because when you see God, when you stand in his presence, you cannot be unmoved. The only appropriate response, as we see from all the beings that are there, is worship. So as the four cherubim, the winged animal-like angels, as they bask in God's glory, they, they praise him for who he is. We're told in verse 7, day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That movie was awesome. That meal was delicious. That garden is beautiful. We marvel in the marvellous. We glory in the glorious. And what could be more glorious than God himself? These angels, they declare the goodness of God's attributes. And we see the attributes they focus on, of God's holiness, his almighty power, and the fact that he is eternal. So that God is holy. We see that God is, is holy and not just holy, God is thrice holy, 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 which is to say that God is supremely holy in all he is. Uh, When the Bible speaks of holiness, uh, it generally conveys a sense of being set apart and of perfect kind of moral goodness and purity. So something that has the quality of holiness means it's been set apart for God or in our case, uh, you know, we've been made a holy people. We're meant to be like God in our actions. But when holiness is used of God itself, I think first and foremost, it refers to his godness. That is why he is set apart. That is why he is good. God is holy. And we see that this holy God is almighty. Uh, He's not limited like we are, finite like we are. No, nothing is beyond his power, which is good because a God who isn't sovereign is hardly a God you can have much confidence in. Like, sorry, I'd like to help you, but I just can't do it. No, that's not the God that we worship. And I could say that this would have been very reassuring to John and his hearers in a world where evil seemed to have the upper hand, uh, where goodness was seen as weak and ineffectual. I could say, yes, that would have been reassuring to them, but that's the world that we live in, isn't it? We still have tyrants just different faces. We still have pain and suffering and evil. But in a world where so much seems like it's out of our control, it's in the hands. We know that it's in the hands of the one um, who is guiding all of history to its right end. We might not always know exactly what's going to happen next. We know uh, that the God who has uh, his hands on the steering wheel is leading it to the place where he wants it to be. That's good news for us. And finally, we see that God is eternal. Before time was, God existed. And if the universe was left to fade into its heat death and nothing existed, he would still be as powerful and as active and as good now as then, as he will be forever. It means that God isn't going anywhere. He's not going to change. He is consistent. As we look at this image of what the angels are saying about God, we should be led to praise ourselves. And I wonder how often are we led to praise God for who he is. I think it's a good encouragement for us um, when we pray, uh, not just to make our prayers 
a shopping list um, of just all the things that we want and things we need, but to spend time just basking and praising God for who he is and all that he has done. I wonder, is your picture of God this big? Or is God small and ineffectual? Um, I think the proof of how we actually see God, how we truly see him, comes out in our actions, doesn't it? See, if you believe that God is weak, you're not going to pray to him. If you don't take God all that seriously, I mean, why would you really care about obeying him? Oh, he'll, be, he'll be fine if I, if I don't listen to him. And Australians, we, we are known for being, you know, larrikins, known for not taking things too seriously. But this we must take seriously. The immensity of God is before us. He is so far above us, so much greater and good and worthy of all the glory and praise that we have to offer. And we see that God is not only worthy of worship for who he is, but he is worthy for what he has done. That's point three. The angelic elders, they pick up and as they hear the words of the four cherubim, they respond, if you look at verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. These exalted angelic beings lay their crowns before God in worship. They are declaring that all they have all that comes from them is God's. And they sing. They sing a song of creation. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. I think we can often say that God made the world as a kind of a, just a matter of fact statement. I mean, it's the first thing my son Theodore learnt about God. Who made this? God. We made that God. And we, we kind of, we, we learn it early and maybe we don't wrestle with the significance, the enormity of that. See, this is the very reason that God is worthy of, of glory and honour and power. He is the creator. God created all existence by himself with a word. Every atom in this room, every galaxy, us. And he not only creates it, he sustains it. Uh, I'm coming to understand, um, perhaps it's just by having kids, um, how much my parents did for me growing up and did for me as an infant even. They, they fed me, they washed me, they clothed me, they changed my nappies, uh, they probably cleaned my vomit off them. You know, they looked after me when I was sick, they put up with my temper tantrums and that's just the first two years of my life. Look how much more God has done for us as our creator. All that we have and enjoy, all that we are, whatever you know, your gifts are, whatever is good and pleasing about you, your existence, that's all from him. And so if God is our maker and we are his creation, that must only lead to worship, right? To want to serve him with all that we are. To live a life for God that honours him, of thankfulness where we obey him. And to even have the thought to God, or the thought that I have no obligation to listen to you, God. Surely that, that, that is the definition of madness. To even contemplate saying to our Creator, I reject you even though you made me and gave me everything, that would be the greatest betrayal. And of course, that's what we all do. 
See, this song of creation acknowledges the ideal of what should have been acknowledged on earth. But all of us exchange the truth of God for a lie. We reject our maker and live in rebellion whether we actively defy him or passively ignore him. And so sin corrupts us and corrupts the world and it becomes a place of ongoing chaos, a place where evil just seems like it will go on forever and ever. But thankfully that is not so. In Revelation 11.15 we see what will one day take place. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. While we are not true, while we go against God, he does, God does not obey. Sorry, God does not abandon his fallen creation. You know, God is true to his sovereign purposes uh, and Christ will come to judge and overthrow all evil. We know that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, whether in humble thanks or whether in submission. And that actually, that, that, that's really important for us to know because we need to see God not only as our maker but as our redeemer, as our saviour. Because only in the blood of Jesus can we be made right with God and not stand as his enemies. And if we've seen anything about this God, you do not want to be his enemy. But what an amazing thing that Jesus, who purchases us, purchases us with his blood on the cross, and we're going to look at that a whole bunch next week, but this leads to something amazing. It actually leads to this glorious, this majestic, transcendent being on the throne. This is God the Father. We can call him Father. That is incredible. So I wonder, um, if you are a Christian, if you, uh, have you grasped the enormity of the one that has the claim on your life, this God of glory? Would you say that your life now is lived in worship? in service and devotion to the one who has made you, but also saved you. God wants all of you. Does he get it? Does he get your priorities, your efforts, your time, your money, your obedience? Let's keep coming back to this great God. So we have this weird and wonderful vision that I hope gives us a fuller picture of the God we worship. Not a visual picture that we can draw of God, but of his character and of what he has done. So in John's vision, we we see where the the power lies. We see the king of heaven and earth. We see a God who is glorious beyond all measure. And how incredible it is that this God draws near. We see a God who is worthy of all praise for who he is. We see a God who is worthy and deserves all of our worship for what he has done for us. Is this the God that you know? Does the picture match? Or do you need to rethink? What a God we have. Um, I pray that as we go about our weeks, that I'm just kind of getting to the, you know, the everyday, that we would not lose sight of the throne room where the power in this world truly lies and that of the God we will one day stand before in his presence, glorifying and worshipping. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a great and glorious God. That you are worthy to receive all glory and honour and power. And we do thank you, Lord, that though you are so much greater than us, uh, though we are indeed uh, wretched before you in our disobedience and sin, 
that you drew near, that you sent your son Jesus to redeem us. And we take great comfort that he draws us to know you. Lord God, we pray that we would live lives that honour and glorify you, um, that you would capture our imagination, that we would take you seriously in all that we do. And we have this great hope um, that Jesus says in Revelation 3, to the one who is victorious, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. We thank you for all this. In his name. Amen.